Hello and welcome to the Sports Loft Podcast, where we talk about the intersection of sports, entertainment, media, and technology. So today is part of our ongoing series. We're going to be talking about the investor's view of the sports and entertainment industry. A lot has changed over the past uh, 18 months since we last spoke to Michael, and we're going to get a view on opportunities for investing in high-growth tech startups to insights into the operations and challenges faced by venture capitalists and explore the current market trends. So I'd like to welcome Michael Spirito, the founder of Sapphire Sports. Michael, welcome back to the Sports Law Podcast. Thank you, Yanni. It's it's great to be back. Uh, it's been over five years now uh, since, we, since we kicked off with our first fund. We'll, of course, get into our, our second fund, which we announced in January with some, some incredible incredible partners and of course dive into this very interesting market in which we are currently all uh, operating investing uh, trying to make things happen uh, but before that it's uh, uh, wonderful to, to speak to you all uh, congratulations on sports loss incredible event in London wish wish I could have been there but uh, heard heard some wonderful things of course 18 months ago gosh that was still in in the middle of covid on a I don't know if it seems like it was yesterday or, or five years ago, but was able to to get on with uh, one of our portfolio CEOs, Ari Day from FIVO, who also is a, a Sports Loft uh, member, wonderful, wonderful founder, CEO, and wonderful company FIVO is. And I know they spend a lot of time with y'all in, uh, in London. And maybe just one one little quick anecdote. Um, Andy Selby, shout out to, to Andy, who uh, was our first associate at uh, Sapphire Sport. He actually predated me uh, before I even joined Doug uh, to kick this thing off. Andy was already in the trenches. This is news. Uh, helping out <laughs> in the founding days of Sapphire Sport. Obviously, City Football Group, a wonderful, integral, and, and original uh, partner um, of, of Sapphire Sport. Andy was our first associate who who joined us from the management training program at City to be our associate. We've since had three additional Andy Selby's. So we call it new 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 Andy every every time we get our, our new <laughs> but uh, an incredible uh, incredible group of uh, of folks who've helped us in the associate position. The current uh, new Andy is a a gentleman named Sam Smith uh, who who's been wonderful for us. Sam was at the Sports Loft Showcase, actually, and at the Investor Brunch that we had on, on Thursday. And uh, what, what I often uh, tell Andy is that he is often imitated, but never duplicated. But just as a brief introduction to for, for anybody who's in the sports and technology world, um, Sapphire Sport is, is very much a known quantity and one of the original sports rights holder venture funds. Um, but as a uh, as a quick introduction, and just to give everybody a flavor, you, you are a founding partner of, of Sapphire Sport, which is a 300 million venture firm now, uh, and you know an incredible list of uh, of LPs, including as you alluded to, uh, City Football Group, uh, AEG, Sinclair, Adidas, Madison Square Garden, uh, and a huge uh, huge list of other principal owners and, and investors from the world of uh, sports and sports leagues. And you yourself are on the board of directors of many different companies that many of us will have heard of, including uh, Buzzer, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a sec, Fivo that you mentioned, Flowhaven, Overtime, and you've also been in a in a number of different roles within the industry, so we can dive into that. But really, there's a lot of news to share and to talk about. Um, you guys have had some incredible investments over the past, uh, since, since standing up the fund and starting it out. Give us a little bit about the origin story. You mentioned that Andy was there before you. 
um, and kind of how you guys developed your thesis around Fund One and looking at the sports and media world and how technology can affect it. And then we'll look at how Fund Two is kind of set up and 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 what you're looking at there. Absolutely. Really, it, it comes from a place, Yanni, of it's not worth doing something if we don't think we can be the best in the world at it. And I'll rewind the movie to 2018 when this all came together. The idea was really sort of twofold. We saw these sort of migratory effects in global sport media entertainment, and it was primarily driven by this change in consumer behavior. I saw it firsthand. You mentioned um, a couple of things that I did previously, but directly previous um, to helping found Sapphire Sport, I was involved in, in building uh, and ultimately selling the Yankees Entertainment Sports Network, a uh, capitalized asset based around local New York Yankees media rights, uh, an RSN, uh, which is, a, a, I'm sure, a topic we can go into a little bit today based on some of the uh, the recent news. Um, but uh, a media and digital media property um, that we built over the course of time and we sold in 2014, late 14, early 15, really into the teeth of this migratory consumer behavior in media. Younger people were doing things differently. They were consuming highlights on social media. They were cutting the cord. They were never getting traditional pay television. That was still sort of a rounding error in the industry. Um, but we sold that business for nearly $4 billion, more than the team itself was worth at the time. Really a singularity if you think about the marketplace and you think about the continued uh, um, increases in, in team valuations up to and including obviously the Washington Commanders, what's happening right now with Manchester United, et cetera, et cetera, right? So that sort of impact of consumer behavior hadn't yet hit the market. Sapphire Ventures, uh, as you know, as many of your listeners would know, a nearly $10 billion asset manager, primarily in enterprise software. Um, on its sixth fund at the time that we we founded Sapphire Sport, Sapphire Ventures was looking at the early stage market as a possible place to start a fund and to put capital against it that was additive, that spoke for the the general marketplace. So when I came together with my co-founder Doug Higgins, Nina Marakovic, Steve Abbott, a lot of the folks you know who kind of came together and put this together in 2018, the idea was. Okay, you have these massive markets of global sport, media, and entertainment. They are being impacted. We don't know yet what those impacts will be in the long run, but we just know that younger people are doing things differently. And if you, as an industry, do not adapt and tap into that, um, you risk going the way of music or print. You risk uh, atrophy in the greater ecosystem that could bleed its way into the bigger picture economic components of it, team valuations, media rights, athlete salaries, all of those sort of things are bound together. So what we did was was we put together this first of its kind fund. Our goal was $100 million uh, and, and we raised $115 million for fund one. We have a, an incredible uh, uh, anchor partner in City Football Group um, and Fran Soriano and, and his team who helped us crystallize this and put this all together. And we were able to construct a group that included folks like, like AEG who own uh, incredible assets across global entertainment, sport, and media, folks like Adidas. And we were able to get majority ownership groups from all of the major U.S. leagues, uh, in addition to other asset owners and stakeholders in global sport. Sinclair uh, on the media side, Bank of Montreal on the financial side, and then a number of others. So we really have this first-of-its-kind product that uh, in sort of the nascent time of sports tech, and we don't call ourselves sports tech, and, and, and it's, it's intentional 
even though sport is in our name, intentional that we are sort of a wider, you know, we're looking at a wider range of, of subsectors and ideas than just sport. Because if we're doing our job right, we are bringing technologies into this world that can be expansive, that can help brands and stakeholders grow their audience and, and, and grow uh, um, their business opportunities. Because at the end of the day, what we look at, uh, Yanni, is three things. We look at how younger people are building communities, which is different and, and certainly technology enabled. We look at how younger people are communicating with each other and fostering those connections and, and communication outlets. And we're looking at how younger people are transacting. And we're trying to invest in technologies that are advancing that ecosystem versus uh, uh, disrupting. So as a brand operating in global sport, media, entertainment, whether you're our Adidas, whether you are the Tampa Bay Lightning, whether you are Major League Baseball, whether you are Manchester City or NYCFC, you are trying to foster a digitally enabled technology enabled connection to your user base, your fan, your customer, your consumer, whatever you want to call it, and build data enabled technology driven business models around that for the long run health and ultimately better profit margins of your brand and your business. That's it. Full stop. <clears throat> and we're trying to invest against that. We can, of course, get into some of the companies and names uh, that by now are, are, are well known, uh, much better known that maybe than when, when we invested in them. And also our second fund, 181 million, which we announced in January of this year, with many of those wonderful partners and some new folks like like MSG, uh, Arctos, uh, and some other owners that that you mentioned. So let's let's look at your LPs. Let's start there. And you know, you mentioned that sport is in the name, but sport is not the be all and end all. It's uh, it's the straw that stirs the drink in terms of engaging with uh, engaging with that audience and uh, understanding how a younger audience transacts, consumes, and interacts with uh, uh, with sport. Was it intentional to go out and find um, investors for the first fund and obviously subsequently following you into the second fund who were in sports and media? Completely intentional. Mm. It was, it, it's, it's why we do what we do. Because we are better informed. We're better board members and advisors to our companies. Um, we understand the ecosystem better by having this base of LPs um, who are operating in in these areas? We were very intentional about this grouping, so much so that we made sure that we had ownership from all of the major U.S. leagues, in addition, of course, to City Football Group and, and European and global football, um, Adidas, a, 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 a global brand and merchandiser and, and retailer, uh, Sinclair, of course, on on the media side, Bank of Montreal on the financial side, AEG is a is a global um, a multi-hyphenate entertainment operator. It was extraordinarily intentional to uh, to do so, but Yanni, we consider these these folks uh, institutional in 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 their operations, um, and and it's the only way in which we believe that we could be credible out of the gate to you know to go in and lead deals, to go in and and and, and be on boards and advise our CEOs and help um, these young nascent startups build companies of consequence, as we say. Uh, in uh, in these large large areas for growth, so that was the idea and the concept. We were, were fortunate to have so many great partners on founding in 2018, and we of course announced our first fund in January of 2019. And here we are, 23 four years later, uh, announcing a very similar group with a lot of the same names with a handful of of new folks 
uh, who also see uh, what that uh, what that mission is. And uh, it, it's all about growing in the same direction because, like I said, everyone's trying to solve the same problem. <laughs> you have a young, diversified user base that is doing things differently, they're transacting differently, communicating differently, and building communities differently. The investment thesis should be similar uh, uh, across all of those realms. And if you add them all up together, um, you know, sport, entertainment, it, it is massive. It's a trillion plus dollar marketplace. It is, it is the tie that binds people together. It's massive and big business. We've seen the institutionalization of capital in many other ways, even commensurate with when we started and subsequent to when we started. Folks like Arctos, institutionalizing minority interest acquisition in teams. Look at what Redbird has done in, in many different areas uh, in this space. Obviously, Silver Lake, the behemoth in, in the industry, but doing more and more in, in sport and entertainment, right? The institutionalization of capital in this realm has uh, only uh, accelerated over the past half decade. Mm. And I think it's really obvious as to why that. I was having a conversation. It's interesting that you mentioned that. I was having a conversation with somebody the other day, and we were sort of wondering, musing, if you will, about whether investors are prepared to take a lower return in sports and maybe media and entertainment than potentially in other industries because of the um, ex the, the relative excitement, the fun, the um, uh, amplifying effect of being involved in that kind of industry. What's what's your view on that? Is that something that is that, that you have encountered? Or uh, if somebody has a dollar and they're prepared to put it in sport or tech or healthcare or something like that, they're just going to be looking at the return. Couldn't disagree more. Um, you, you, first of all, let, let's just look at the valuation of these teams and the meteorites. Is, is there a market in which you would rather be invested over the past half decade? Think about it. Any, any market. Any, anywhere. No. And look yeah. at the folks who are involved. Look, look, at, look at these owners. Whether it's Steve Pagliuca, Dane Blitzer, Jeff Vinnick, Steve Kaplan, these are folks who, who who have been asset managers, started funds, have been managing capital over decades. Yes, owning something that you have a, a visceral interest in and an attachment to that community is inherently more interesting, but the capital return profile is absolutely there. And if you look at folks who bought teams, uh, NBA teams, NHL teams, English Premier League teams, 15, 20 years ago for a couple hundred million bucks, 400 million bucks, 500 million bucks, and those assets are worth many billion dollars now. I think it's clear that the return profile is there. And, and it's not a it, sports, perhaps, was seen as a, as a vanity asset class a couple decades ago, but, but that is clearly not the case now. And I think it, it speaks to the institutional capital that has joined the fray in many different buckets within global sport over the past half decade or so. For the record, I agreed with you on that uh, on that side of the debate, but it's, uh, it, it's an interesting one. And it's interesting that that sort of um, myth still lingers to a certain degree, right? Um, but let's take the learnings that you've had over the past four years of setting up, standing up fund one, investing, deploying capital. How much of that have you taken into fund two? You said the thesis remains largely the same. And so a lot of your um, investors have come along for the ride on fund two as well. Has anything changed? Have you refined anything 
um, which will lead into a very interesting conversation about where this technology can take the next generation of sports fandom, um, which you alluded to a little bit earlier, which I'm really excited to get into. Look, our, our dominant thesis, Yanni, is the next generation of consumers are doing things differently, right? They are fundamentally doing things differently in a manner in which if you are trying to be ahead of that or or subjugate that or, or whatever it might be, it, it's it's impossible to do so. We we saw that with, with the media industry and now the rush to direct to consumer that we've seen uh, subsequently. That started happening in 2014. Subscriber atrophy in US pay TV, just to use an example, was plus or minus 1%. Now we're literally half, what, 40 to 50% of the pay TV households in the US now eight years later. That's a massive industry. That's just one part of the industry and one part of the industry that touches the economic construct of global sport uh, um, as uh, as an industry. Our thesis is that that will continue, right? And now, it, let's, let's say eight years later uh, than that sort of original cutting the cord uh, um, behavior that the industry started to understand, there's another generation of people, right? It's Gen Z now and Gen Alpha. They've been on smartphones for the past eight years. They've been doing things differently. They've had this behavior uh, uh, that has set itself. By the way, that behavior was only imprinted and, 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 and had e even more sort of foundation in how people behave during COVID. Everything was digital first, at your home, through digital platforms. It, it was 100% the way people did things. And that behavior has been e e even more sort of uh, um, foundational. So we look at that as the norm. And we look at areas that we can identify as larger sandboxes in which to to play for finding great companies that will build great products, build great services in these in in, in these sort of uh, uh, ecosystems. So next gen media is is obvious. Um, we do a lot of gaming as well as you see with companies like Phoenix Labs and Aglet and Green Park. Those are those are media companies in in a lot of ways, right? It's 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 time share and time spend. It's wallet share and wallet spend, and it's ultimately um, where people are uh, uh, building communities, right? So we kind of look at next gen media and not just the consumer facing uh, um, elements of it, but also the infrastructure and, and technology underpinnings of it, right? We're looking at software, we're looking at delivery mechanisms, we're looking at sort of the the picks and shovels of of how next gen media. Um, is serviced ultimately. We look at health and wellness. Uh, that obviously had a, a nice run up during COVID and it, it's largely been challenged over the past year or so, but we still do believe in the quantified self and, and what the the opportunities are within uh, health, wellness, human performance. And we put things like, uh, like sleep and uh, uh, mental health and everything sort of into that bucket. Digital commerce is another massive area for us to explore. Again, when you think of the brands that we have within our LP ecosystem, obviously how younger people are transacting and uh, quite frankly, the wallet share that they have that I don't think the industry has given them enough credit for uh, is certainly a, an investable theme for us. Uh, obviously a, a uh, a company like Fivo as a, a social purchasing platform across not just global sport, media, and entertainment, but also hospitality and retail uh, uh, certainly speaks to that thesis. So we look at, at those sort of three major um, uh, areas. We will we will do very deep dives on things that uh, have heat on them at the moment, 
Uh, as we all know, that doesn't necessarily mean long-term sustainability. Uh, the metaverse and Web3 was something a lot of people were interested in a year and a half ago. Uh, we, we didn't make it a, a theme of ours. We, we looked at it quite a bit. We had a lot of very uh, deep, detailed, interesting conversations with our LPs about what it means for them. And quite frankly, that helped inform our investment approach, which is to say we, we didn't do a lot in that space, thankfully, in retrospect at certainly some of the valuations that were being stood up uh, 18 to 24 months ago. Um, but that is, you know, the, the, an example of something where we'll, 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 we'll be cognizant of it just as we are right now with AI and what that means to the industry. For me as an investor, uh, it's more important um, from the, the point of view of what does AI mean for a business that's operating? If you're a content creator, can it get your, your costs down? If you're, a, uh, um, you know, if you're a digital commerce company, is there something that you can put into the ecosystem that makes it more efficient for you to uh, get to your user base and speak to your user base and ultimately forge those transactions, right? We're looking at it as a component technology to ho hopefully what is already a big quantifiable idea and TAM and hopefully make it more efficient and quicker to get there, right? So that's kind of looking at that. We, we do believe that that standalone AI businesses will be built um, and they, they, they certainly is, is a, a a ton of capital going into that this year. Um, but I think if you look at those two um, sort of things, that's that's kind of how we'll look at, um, you know, hey, is this something that we should be spending time and obviously our investors' capital on uh, in, mm. in in sort of our, our, our you know, portfolio construction uh, um, exercises? Mm. And AI was certainly a theme that came out of the Sports Lock Showcase, not, not just AI-based companies like Satisfy and Move who are using AI to do do what they do, but Fivo, for example, your portfolio company is looking at applying an AI layer into its new products, which was, which was fascinating to see and hear about, um, and kind of speaks to that engagement um, by the younger audience in a different way, who are very happy to, to speak to a bot. They don't necessarily need to speak to a person if they get the same answer, and who are very um, very much sort of using chat GPT and open AI in a way that, you know, we are used to using Google. Um, and, uh, SEO is, is potentially going to be a thing of the past in the very near future. Um, but speaking of that new audience and kind of the way that they consume, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in, in your view on this. Um, it, it, it seems to me like there's a disconnect right now in the industry between how people are consuming and how people are planning, um, sorry, how fans are consuming and how people are planning going forwards. And I, I, I mentioned this because, um, you know, I was listening to a podcast about the NBA recently, and they were talking about um, the new collective bargaining agreement and the new media rights uh, that are going to be coming up. And the fact that, you know, all of a sudden you're going to be looking at players potentially making, you know, as a, as a fixed percentage of basketball related income, you know, suddenly you're going to have people who are potentially on 60 to $65 million contracts, which inherently assumes an increase in the media rights, the, the, the media rights fees are going to come in the next cycle, right? Whereas audiences are dropping. Um, we know that um, uh, RSNs are struggling, you know, you mentioned it. There's even some uh, uh, some discussions with, uh, with whether RSNs are even going to get rights um, in, in certain markets. Um, and, uh, and, I'm not sure that people have quite managed to figure out how to monetize the different consumption patterns of the uh, of the younger fans. So, where do you stand on that, and where do you see opportunities for 
technology to capitalize on that and provide um, revenue opportunities, but also for leagues to do a better job. Yanni, I think we know two things. The first is sport is the great unifier. I think we saw that as well when it went away for a few months in, in summer of 2020 and what it was like when it came back and the fact that record audiences, record ticket sales, and it's not just sport, but also entertainment, music, concerts, everything. I mean, look at the, the rest of the slate for this year of, of concerts, high leverage sporting events. I mean, Formula One in Vegas, uh, uh, um, you know, look at attendance at obviously uh, the, the, the Women's Champions League match, 92,000 people. Uh, a few weeks ago, and I'm sure Istanbul City Inter is going to be, it's just the ticket prices, the desire and demand for for attendance at these events. It's very obvious that sport and entertainment is a great unifier and something that is fairly rece- recession proof in terms of how people want to spend their money and how they want to engage and build communities. So that that to me is, is crystal clear um, and, and even more so now than it, than it was um, a few years ago. Um, you also have to believe that people will go as deep with the brands, the entities, the teams, the leagues, the athletes themselves, um, the media companies in some, in, in some cases, they will go as deep into those experiences as technology will allow them. They will, they will purchase uh, tickets, goods, merchandise. They will uh, consume content. I mean, just look at social media platforms. I mean, look, look at what people and how people are consuming the athletes, the the teams, like they want to go deep. And the only restriction has been what the traditional rights deals and the traditional league uh, um, deals with the teams and with media companies have sort of uh, um, basically fenced in, right? So- we know people will spend money, they will spend time, they will build communities around these brands that they love. And the brands are the teams, the, the, the leagues in some cases, the, the athletes themselves, et cetera. Um, we also know um, that the economic construct doesn't change too much, right? And it all manifests itself in a couple different things. The media rights, the team valuations, and athlete salaries. And those are the things people see, mm-hmm. right? When a team sells for $6 billion, or you know uh, the the NBA contract, the max contract is going to end up being fifty or fifty-five or sixty million or whatever it's going to be in the next CBA. Um, or you know the the new NBA deal is X billion dollars on whatever network it is, right? So we we know those things, but those are the economic underpinnings of everything. And if any one of those things slips, so let's let's say let's just take take sort of the media rights as sort of the driving force. If that slips, if we have a flat to down deal, then that finds its way into athlete salaries and team valuations. And then we have sort of this, you know, this sinking uh, uh, element that we just haven't seen, right? So um, what technology can do is build that better bridge between those brands that I I talked about and the end consumer. And if we believe that people will go as deep as they possibly can and almost endlessly consume that which they want, and again, the, the te- technology barriers have, have brought everything down. We, we expect to have the highlight right away. We expect to almost like be in conversation with our athletes as they come off the court or off the pitch. We expect to buy the shirt off of, of, off of their back. Like that's the expectation of the consumer. Technology exists to be able to deliver that. The ability for leagues and teams and consent federations and every other element of the global sport and entertainment construct 
to tap into that should allow for the creation of higher profit margin businesses in the long run that are built around that. And we're seeing that with everyone's foray into a more direct-to-consumer approach. I'm not saying the direct-to-consumer is the be-all and end-all, nor should it be a one-stop or one-size-fits-all, you know, one we all have to do it now because uh, the RSNs are dissolving, or we all have to do it now because um, you know, there's some pressure on you know, the next media rights deal or whatever it is. But if the industry is looking at the best way to future-proof itself, it has to be in the use and partnerships, use of and partnerships with technology companies that can deliver these products and experiences in the most effective, most convenient, uh, best possible way. And you can do that. The technology exists. But how you construct them, how you give the, you know, if it's the local media rights, what can you do with those local media rights to put other uh, engaging elements into it, put other uh, interactive elements into it, put merchandising and ticket sales into it? Well, what can you build around the media rights that is a better product that has brand identity with that which the consumers buy? There shouldn't be a middleman for that. It should be direct conversation, a direct relationship. Fans will give their data to the teams and brands and entities that they love and, and want to follow. Look at look at all the entities we give our data to already. Social media companies, uh, financial institutions. I mean, who knows what and where that data is going? Nobody does. But you will give your data happily to the, 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 the teams, the leagues, the media companies, like those with, with whom you forge longstanding and community-oriented relationships with. You can build incredible businesses around that. Provided, as you say, that you've got that connection and that the, the rights holder is providing what the fan wants at the base uh, at the base level, right? And the technology is, is interesting in that and can help achieve that. Exactly. And you mentioned, yeah, our ratings in certain sports down, but yeah, they're up in other sports. And if you add everything together across all platforms, like look at the NBA, um, you know, the, the, the playoffs, I think if you add everything together all across all platforms, it's still an extraordinarily powerful uh, uh, property. I don't see that next deal uh, uh, being in any, uh, in any state of, of, of risk uh, in any way, shape or form. That's an incredible property. Um, you know, you talk about the NFL, obviously that that's, that's, that's speaks for itself. Untouchable. Untouchable. All. Um, obviously look at formula one, EPL, other global football in the U S there's growth there. There's growth in MLS. I think the MLS Apple deal is extraordinarily interesting and something we should, as an industry should be studying. Like there, there's, there's quite a lot that tells me that yes, even in the age of the traditional pay TV ecosystem eroding, there's a lot of strength there. But it's a precarious time in as much as we need to be experimenting with new technologies, new products, new form factors that can tap into the zeitgeist of consumer behavior and put it all together even more coherently. The media problem, mm. wagering where it's legal, uh, uh, um, communication, the ability to have that that relationship with your community of, of fans. And I know there's a lot of companies that have tried this, but 
Nobody's really put it all together within a media property that you can watch a game sitting on your couch with your friends and enjoy it uh, in different ways. How you buy things socially, obviously Fivo has a social buying property, but how you buy something socially and share it with your friends, um, putting all of that together around the strong economic elements of sport. And by that, I really do mean the the in-person in experience and the the media property. We're still in the infancy of that. We are trying to do our small part in helping solve that and helping back great founders, great ideas that can take this industry forward. What with with that in mind, um, and kind of also bearing in mind uh, the the fact that the market has changed over the last four years since since fund number one, and perhaps some of the valuations uh even pre-money valuations that uh, uh that you will have seen will be significantly more um investor friendly uh at this point um what are you looking at and what are you most excited about uh with fund two in terms of um the types of technologies uh or the types of markets those technologies can be applied in uh as you start to look at how to deploy well, let me start with the obvious, um, Yanni. It's uh, with a, a fresh new fund uh, and fresh capital uh, that is largely not deployed. Um, we at Sapphire Spore are are pleased with the entry point valuations that this market is awarding uh, um, everyone. We also are very pleased with the fact that we have more time to do our jobs, which is get to know founders, do our diligence, use our ecosystem and our LP group to to come to conclusions, know what we know and know what we don't know before putting a term sheet down and before yeah. making an investment. Because our industry, the I'm talking about the venture capital industry and not the sports industry, but the, but the industry of venture capital tends to overcorrect in too much of one direction when market forces uh, um happen, or I should say extraordinary market forces. A bull run of 10 years is an extraordinary market force. So as you got to the tail end of that bull run in 2020 and 2021, and again, you had the wonkiness of early or, or mid-2020 with, with COVID, nobody knew what the hell was going on, but it really did serve as even more wind in the sails of tech and, and, and sort of early and mid-stage VC. When you have that sort of unabated bull market, no valuation is too high, no no opportunity for growth is uh, is too important, right? And it's grow, 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 grow. You, there's there's always another round. There's always a higher valuation. It's not true. Okay. Uh, we look at now. You have uh, a situation in which um, the market is corrected. Uh, the access to capital is 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 much more difficult, um, and the exit opportunities, uh, particularly M&A and IPO, are, are largely not there right now. You certainly don't want to be examining any sort of an exit opportunity in, in, in this year. Um, but the the difficult the difficult nature of the build, and it's difficult to begin with. Startup CEOs and founders are are the craziest individuals you'll ever meet in your life. I mean, it, it takes a special person, and we're backing special people to be able to go out there and serve this mission and build a team build a product and, and take it to the world. But the industry itself overcorrects in, in, in crummy times because it's get profitable on the money that you have and you know just survive, right? And yes, there's an element of truth to that, but the answer is somewhere in between, right? The answer is build prudently, 
Um, manage your cash prudently. Pick your opportunities. Pick your opportunities even more distinctly uh, um, and with more care than you did, you know, two three years ago. But build and grow. Capital will be there for companies that should uh, merit it. And great companies, the best companies, are built and forged in shitty times. Like that's clear. It's always been clear. We know that. So in terms of how we're looking at the market, it's okay, valuations have largely corrected, but we're an early stage fund. We're seed A and B. So this market probably makes us a little more of an A and B fund because we can get a little more for a dollar. We can get a little more product market fit, a little more revenue in ARR at that period of time. Valuations have come down to the point where it's probably dropped a weight class. So your B valuations, your A, your A, your seed, and, and your seed don't really go below a certain threshold. If you if you have a great founding team and it's still a product without market fit, a seed deal is a seed deal. It's 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 you know fifteen to twenty percent uh, um, dilution, you know, at a five six million raise, and you kind of fund it and, and and you see what happens. Like that's that's a seed deal, right? The A's and the B's. And in some cases, you know, the the the, the feature out, but we're really sort of sitting in that that the, in that uh, area. It's, you know, it is market oriented, and there have been down rounds. And convertible notes and bridges are no longer a bad word. They're good. They become a good word in in, in times like this. So it, it's about being nimble, um, but also just staying true to your your thesis. It's you want to back a great founder in a great team with a great idea in a suitably large market, right? That uh, you feel good about the price that you paid. And that's that's where we are. So um, in 2023, and, and, and I think this this market will largely continue into, you know, into and through the first half of next year, we're looking at ourselves as a, as a, a series A fund and to get to a question that I'm, I'm sure you're going to ask, you know, what what our sort of bite size is and kind of how we think about ownership, you know, where we can write a, a check, you know, $181 million fund, a check as small as a couple million um, and sort of be a co-investor. Uh, we like to lead and co-lead. We like to do it about half the time. So in a, in a 20-inch company fund too, we're going to lead or co-lead probably half to slightly more than half of the time. And those checks are larger five, six, seven could could be eight or nine depending on the opportunity. Um, we love the investing with with other smart folks, and we think a a market like this, there's a little more sort of collaboration uh, and, and fewer sharp elbows in the ecosystem as everyone's going through so thing. Um, you know, we we like to believe that's true, and we've co invested with a lot of great folks since since starting since starting Sapphire Sport. So it's uh. It's an interesting marketplace. Um, it's a dynamic marketplace. Uh, it, it hasn't changed us too much because we also had a lot of valuation discipline. We weren't doing, you know, many entry points, if any at all, uh, that I can remember. Fund one that were that were higher than a, a hundred million uh, in in the first check. I mean, we're, we're, most of our companies are between twenty and sixty, um, and you know that's seed and A. And like I said, again, depending on the, the period of time in which you're investing, those terms are kind of interchangeable. How difficult is it to look at valuations that founders put in front of you 
in different types of companies. So, you know, let's, uh, you know, let's take Overtime as an example, which is a uh, fundamentally an IP rights company. Uh, you know, it, it's a league, even though it has technology components. And then you have companies that are purely tech software as a service or a commission on a transaction. Uh, how difficult or, or how easy is it to, to really understand those different, um, uh, different technologies, different industries, different verticals, different valuation models, different revenue models, and be able to come up with a coherent approach to uh, what that's worth and then what you want to put into it? Well, let's, let's start with perhaps the obvious, but maybe maybe it's not so because you're when you think about something, it's usually you know the the recent past that that, that sort of most uh, is impressed upon your mind. But you know, I've been involved in overtime for 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 five years now, and it was not an IP company. Yeah. It was a technology enabled social media content company, um, and that's that's how it started. Right, it, it was right, right. Yeah, yeah. Video capture at source. Uh, around high school, primarily high school basketball, but also high school football, um, telling stories about these athletes. And you could go back to the early days of overtime, Zion Williamson, um, Trey Young, uh, and, and others. But there was a, a piece of technology that enabled that capture and very, very quick distribution of video to socials. And overtime built its brand in those early days around that and got to uh, a million, two million, five million followers across socials and, and, were on their way, right? So IP has happened over the past, call it two and a half, three years, really going back to the the B round that we did summer of 2020 when the world was was going crazy, but overtime was killing it. Two billion views a month and and had this incredible, basically theater uh, of operations with its brand across many different categories, not just uh, um, sport, and, and other sort of potential IP, uh, um, but also the the platforms on which it was was being distributed, and they were the first to TikTok, and they have a bigger because of that bigger TikTok brand than I think any other brand in, in global sports. So the opportunity to create IP was sort of born in that period of uh, of time, and in, in, in sort of you know mid to late 2020 when Zach and Dan had it on on the whiteboard and and it was it was an opportunity to say hey now's the time to go do it so you know overtime is very much a a business that has a lot of different skews it's a merch business it's a media company uh it's a, it's a it's a professional league it it is uh a a a content aggregator distributor uh it's 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 so many different things under one brand that you know, obviously the round that we did, we did last year, uh, you know, with, with, with Liberty, with Morgan Stanley, with Winslow, with all of our great existing investors, uh, you know, 112 million raised at a, at a suitable, uh, valuation, um, that I won't say, um, uh, substantiates, substantiates the business that Dan, uh, uh, and the team, uh, have, uh, have built. So it's a company that looks a lot different now than it did five years ago as it should. And, and so that, the point. But if if you want to sort of get down to the brass tacks of, okay, you're a series A or seed company in X, Y, or Z area. Yeah. If you're an AI company right now, then then your valuations are, are higher. Uh, maybe than they should be, but 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 that's sort of the, the web three of, of right now. And you're seeing commensurate valuations with maybe fewer proof points because that's the hot area. That happens all the time in venture capital. The the trick is to to separate the wheat from the chaff and, and find the right company uh, and, and team to back. 
Um, we are predominantly a technology investor, so sort of the 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 underpinnings of of sort of tech valuations and tech multiples sort of you know pervade how we we think about things. But in the early stages, there there's you know there's some science to it, and as much as okay. There's some comps. There's some, you know, some uh, um, sort of, hey, this is what we have so far from the data. We can kind of back into evaluation of this. But technology-enabled companies typically will fall into certain bands for, um, okay, here it's a, it's a seed. Uh, there's some product market fit, or it's an A, and ARR is this. You can you can pretty easily back into evaluation in the back of your mind. But then you have the market dynamics of, okay. Are there other 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 term sheets? Is there going to be a bidding war? Is you know is it difficult to raise capital in this environment for this founder for X Y or Z reason? Like it's it sort of becomes that, and you kind of get to a point where okay, this is what the valuation should be. At the end of the day, if it's going to be a big outcome, it shouldn't matter, right? So you know it it the rounding error at the early stages are such that if you're backing a suitably large opportunity, then it really shouldn't matter at the end of the day within a certain band. Now, should you be paying in this market, you know, 200 million for a, a pre-money, you know, idea and, you know, whatever the flavor of the week is? I don't think you should be, but, you know, some people might. A couple of quick questions. First of all, speaking of Fund2 in the process of being deployed, where do you hope to be uh, with Fund2 and what do you hope for the uh, current portfolio companies uh, that are within the uh, within the fund? Let's start with the current portfolio companies. We we work very closely with our 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 our, our founders and our teams, as you know. Just you know, talk to Ari, talk to Dan, talk to Bo. Um, we we are elbow to elbow with them as as much as they need to uh, help them achieve the best possible outcome. And we have companies in various stages of development from Fund One. Um, some companies, not a lot, thankfully, but some companies will have to raise additional capital this year. So we're, we're obviously cognizant of that and being extraordinarily helpful um, with uh, with those teams that that have to uh, fortify the balance sheet. We have companies that are growing and exploring strategic opportunities uh, um, and commercial relationships. So obviously, we have an incredible ecosystem across global sport, media, entertainment from which to call and and help there. But um, this is a market that we believe uh, is going to be around for a little while. And sort of once we get out of it, the opportunity for strategic M&A, uh, hopefully the IPO market comes back, we believe it will, uh, um, and what the exit opportunities are um, will certainly be in much clearer focus, we think, probably starting the back half of 24 into 25, right? So Fund one's portfolio, it's it's you know, batten down the hatches, spend prudently, grow, but don't grow at all costs, right? Just do the right thing to get through this, be offensive where you can and get to a point where when strategic opportunities are available again, we have the opportunity to examine them uh, on our terms. Um, and that's that's all we can ask for. Uh with fund two, again, largely undeployed. Uh, um we are looking at a deployment cycle of about four years, three and a half, four years. So we'd like to have you know, eighteen to twenty-four, maybe twenty-five companies come out of come out of that fund. Like I said, half 
will lead, co-lead, take a board seat, be very involved. The other half, you know, maybe, you know, a smaller check, but will also be very involved. Uh, and, and of course, um, you know, the check size is, is immaterial to us in terms of how we, um, how we work with, uh, with, with, with our founders and in our companies. But that's sort of the deployment cycle that, that we envision. Um, you know, that could, that could quicken based on certain market dynamics. We could, we could make it last a little bit longer, but, you know, plus or minus three and a half, four years, we think is a very prudent approach because anyone who invested in a two-year fund life cycle, if you were doing that in 20 and 21 or 21 and 22, that's, that's tough, right? It's, it's not, you know, four years kind of gets you if you have any sort of market uh, um, uh, tumult, you can, you can sort of even that out. And we, we, we sort of like, we like that approach. And we've also seen, uh, as I'm, I'm sure you have, and I'm sure was the talk of, of last week, um, second quarter, uh, deal volume vibrancy, uh, certainly picked up versus fourth quarter and first quarter. that, that is uh, something that was, was very obvious to us for sure. So if you had to bet on one of the following as the future of sport, um, listeners can't see Michael right now, but he's just pulling one of those faces like, oh my God, what's coming? Um, would it be first party data uh, and direct consumer proposition with fans? Would it be uh, Web3 uh, or would it be AI? The first one by far. Um, I think we, we we spent 10 minutes on the, on that somewhere somewhere in the middle, but that is literally what I, th- I think is the biggest um, opportunity in sport because of people's desire to um, build communities around brands and forge a direct one-on-one relationship with the brands that they love. So the ability to do the right thing with that data and build data-enabled businesses and models around that, but also have the the middleman uh, um, and, and sort of the impediments to technolo- technological innovation sort of fall away. And again, I don't think it's pure D to C in every way, shape, or form. I think elements yeah. of it, uh, um, and it can be used thoughtfully. But that that um, the ability to build business better businesses around those elements, I think, is open to every part of the sport, media, and entertainment ecosystem globally. And that, to me, is the biggest opportunity over the next decade. Absolutely. I think we're seeing a lot of the rights holders start to really focus on that and try to understand how they can uh, how they can capitalize on that. All the reminds for me is to say a huge thank you to our distinguished guest, Michael. Thank you for joining us again in the Sports Loft. Thank you, Yanni, and thank you, the Sports Loft team, for having me. Thank you again to our listeners, and we'll see you next time in the Sports Loft. Goodbye. <laughs>